Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Good morning. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 through 29. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The word of the Lord. I don't know um, what kind of questions you all face in life, but we all have questions and we're all looking for answers. Some of our questions are everyday questions like, how do I fix my toilet? Or what dog shampoo is best? 
But other questions reveal our deepest struggles. Questions like, um, how can I get this boy or girl to notice me? Or what's, how did my marriage get to this place and what can I do about it? Or um, why are my kids struggling and how can I help them? Questions like, how do I tell my parents I'm gay? What does it mean to be a man or a woman in this world? What do I do with questions about my gender? Why am I so unhappy or anxious or lonely or depressed or suicidal? How do I find freedom from this addiction and the shame that I feel about it? When I'm lost, how do I find purpose? When I'm exhausted, how do I find rest? When I'm afraid, how do I find peace? These are the questions and many others that fill our daily lives. And because we're all just trying to find a way through life in this world, aren't we? How do we do that? One of the ways is we look for guidance. Um, and maybe somebody who's um, been through the same thing we're experiencing and can show us the way. It may be that we look for answers on Google or Instagram or YouTube. Uh, but for thousands of years, people have also looked to moral and spiritual teachers, people like Socrates, Buddha, and Oprah. And people have also looked for thousands of years to Jesus. So what, whatever your spiritual background or lack of it is, People have always been curious about Jesus. Many people uh, who grew up in church have rejected Christianity, but are still admire or at least respect Jesus. Or, for instance, there was a uh, global survey last year that revealed that 60% of teenagers all around the world today are curious to learn more about Jesus. But here's the challenge. Um, our world has radically different opinions about who Jesus is. The interest in Jesus and also the controversy about Jesus has never stopped. So, for instance, many of you probably saw a meme that went around last year contrasting the colonizer Jesus with the historical Jesus. And whatever you think about this meme, at the very least, it shows us that people are aware that there are distorted views about Jesus, but it also shows us that people want to know the real Jesus. And so for the next 14 weeks, that's what we're going to try to do. And this morning, we're beginning with probably the most popular level conception out there of who Jesus is, that Jesus was a great teacher. Is that true? And if so, what does that mean? How does Jesus answer the deepest questions and struggles of our lives? How does Jesus help us through life? Well, this passage we just read is, is one of the best places to look. And as we do, let's ask three questions. Can we know what Jesus taught? Second, if so, what did Jesus teach? And lastly, why does it matter? Can we know what Jesus taught? If so, what did he teach? And lastly, why does it matter? Okay, first, can we know what Jesus taught? This is actually a huge challenge for us. Many people are, are skeptical about the possibility that we can really know what Jesus said or what Jesus taught. They'll say, look, the gospel accounts of his life are a fictional creation, or it's a mere metaphor for being a good person, but we can't really know what Jesus said or did. That is a very common narrative. And so throughout this series, one of the things I want to do is offer you some basic tools for how to think about this. So for the next few minutes, can we nerd out on something for just a few minutes? Is that okay? Okay, great. Did you know that um, the historical Jesus, quote, historical Jesus, is one of the largest academic fields in the world? 
that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of books on the so-called historical Jesus. Now, here's the thing. About 10% of these books are by people advocating for the Christian faith. Another 10% are skeptics who are advocating against the Christian faith. So each of these groups, in a sense, they have a a dog in the fight. But here's the thing. The remaining 80% of books about Jesus are by professional historians who don't, they're not really interested in the theological claims about Jesus. Their job as historians is simply to say, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What can we know with reasonable confidence about Jesus? And notice they don't say, what can we believe? They say, what can we know? Because historical inquiry is a science. It's not talking about Hogwarts or Wakanda or Middle Earth. It's talking about real events that happened in the real world. So historians in top academic institutions all around the world have a a set of very precise, measurable, agreed-upon criteria by which they evaluate the reliability of ancient documents like the New Testament. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, One of the most common things you will hear people say about the New Testament is that it was written hundreds of years after Jesus lived, and that it was translated and retranslated so many times that we can't possibly know what the original said. So, for instance, it's kind of like the game of telephone. You know, you'll whisper something in someone's ear, they'll whisper it in the next person's ear, and by the time it gets all the way back around to you, the original message is completely lost. People say that's what happened with the Bible. The more it got translated, the more the original message has been lost. So what do we say to that? Well, this is where basic historical tools help us out. Now, historians, um, of the many standards that they use, they they have two big questions when they're evaluating ancient documents. They'll, They'll ask, how many copies of an ancient document do we have? And the next thing they'll ask is, how close to the time of writing is the earliest copy that we have? So let me give you an example of what this looks like in, um, in real time. Thucydides was an ancient Greek historian who lived about 450 years before the time of Jesus. Um, most historians um, have no problem trusting that what Thucydides wrote, that we have historically reliable access to that. Nobody's losing sleep at night wondering, can we trust what Thucydides wrote? Now, how many copies do we have of Thucydides? Eight copies. And when is the earliest copy to the time that Thucydides lived? 1,300 years after he lived. This is very common for ancient documents. For instance, Aristotle's Poetics, two copies. Hundreds of years after the time that he lived. This is very common, and these are the standards that historians use. Now, when we look at the New Testament uh, and we use these standards, how does the New Testament stack up to other ancient documents? At last count, there were over... 5,800 copies of the Greek New Testament, ancient copies. And the earliest copy, uh, it's a fragment of the Gospel of John, has actually been dated to within 50 years of the time John wrote. Do you you hear what this is saying to us? Here's what this means. If, If the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life really were just a badly played game of telephone, then when historians look at all these thousands of different copies and compare them, we would expect to see thousands of mistakes and errors and discrepancies. Instead, when historians compare all these thousands of documents of the, of the Greek New Testament, you know what the accuracy rate is? 99.75% accurate. Here's what this means. The, the New Testament um, 
historically, is head and shoulders above any other ancient document from, from the ancient world. That means that when we look at it, we can be pretty reasonably confident that what we're looking at is, is what the original said. That is far and away um, more impressive and, and more reliable than any other ancient document in the ancient world. But here's the question. What about that other accusation? that the New Testament was written hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. And um, even if we can know what the original said, we still don't know that what we have is reliable information about what Jesus said and did. What do we do about that? Well, there are other tools that historians use. Let me mention just one more of them briefly right now. If you're in school, you know how when you write a paper, you can't just say whatever you want? You have to put footnotes, right? You have to cite your sources. When historians look at the New Testament, at the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they notice that there are all these names of people in there, not main characters all the time, but just names that are in there. People like Malchus, which is the name of the guy whose ear Peter cut off. Or Mary, which is the name of the woman who first saw Jesus risen from the dead. There are all these names. When historians look at these names, you know what they say these are? They're footnotes. The gospel writers are naming their eyewitnesses. And just like today, in the ancient world, first-hand eyewitness testimony was always considered far more reliable than second- or third-hand reports. And so most modern historians will readily say, look, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life were not written hundreds of years after Jesus lived. They were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. That's, they almost unanimously agree upon that. Now, here's what this means. You know how, um, how um, sometimes people will deny that the Holocaust ever happened? Why can they never get away with that? It's because there are people who are still alive who can say, no, I was there. I'm an eyewitness. You can't just get away with fake news. There are too many people around, too many eyewitnesses to call you out on it. Why is it that we can trust the New Testament Gospels? The reason we know that the the Gospel writers are not just making up myths and legends, they're not just making stuff up about Jesus, the reason we know that they're um, not wrong about Jesus is the same reason we know that Alex Jones is wrong about Sandy Hook. There are too many eyewitnesses to call people out on it. So listen, here's the the big point for this first point. Um, If we think it's better to listen to a real scientist than someone on Facebook... Or if we think it's better to listen to a real doctor than something you read on the internet, then shouldn't we be willing to listen to historians who tell us that the New Testament really is one of the most reliable ancient documents in the world? Does that mean that we can have 100% absolute certainty about everything Jesus said and did? Of course not. It does mean that we can have reasonable confidence about quite a bit about Jesus' life, according to the experts, okay? Now, that leads to our next point. Number one, we just wanted to find out, can we know what Jesus taught with a high degree of confidence? Yeah, we can. But if so, secondly, what did Jesus teach? This passage that we read this morning begins with one of the most famous things Jesus ever said. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Familiar? This is known as the golden rule, and it's one of the most famous examples of Jesus' ethical teaching um, ever produced. 
In fact, I've never met anybody, no matter how skeptical they are, never met anyone who questions whether or not Jesus said this. So, for instance, Nicholas Kristof is a writer and um, columnist in the New York Times. He's pretty progressive, but he's also very open about his admiration for Jesus' ethical teaching. For Nicholas Kristof, that is the essence of Christianity. And so, over the years, he's done a series of interviews with well-known Christians, people like Tim Keller or Jimmy Carter. And almost inevitably, his first question will go something like this. He will say, I revere Jesus' teachings, but I have trouble with the miracles. Can't we take the Sermon on the Mount, but leave the supernatural? Nicholas Kristof is a great example of somebody who, um, who looks to Jesus as a great teacher and also sees the New Testament as a reliable source of what Jesus actually taught. So here's the question. There's no doubt that the Sermon on the Mount is full of ethical and moral content, but is that all that Jesus taught? Well, let's take a look. Right after the golden rule, Jesus finishes the sermon with a series of warnings, and one of them goes like this. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. So there are two possible ways to live here, Jesus is saying. And one of the most common assumptions about this is that Jesus is contrasting being a good person, that's the way that leads to life, with being a bad person, that's the way that leads to destruction. And if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, at least at a surface level, it appears to support that assumption. Uh, at the very end, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus is saying it's not enough to just hear what I teach. You have to actually do it. Otherwise, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Jesus is saying there are two ways to live, and one way is going to lead to life, the other way is going to lead to destruction. And one of the most common assumptions is that he's contrasting being a good person or being a bad person. So think about all the, the questions and struggles that we talked about at the beginning this morning. We're all just looking for a way through life. Jesus is saying, I can help you with that. And at the most simplistic level, it's easy to think that all he's saying is, hey, look, be a good person and you will be fine. But think about who Jesus is talking to. Who was his original audience? Good religious people. Jesus is talking to people who are already praying, already fasting. They're already giving to the poor. They're already doing good works. And Jesus is saying it's possible for, for them to be lost why? That means that the real contrast here is not between what we would call the good people and the bad people. The real contrast is between good people and something else. What is that something else? Well, notice what Jesus says in one of the other warnings that he gives. Right in the middle, he says, many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So these are people that are doing good things. They're doing what Jesus did, preaching, teaching, healing, doing miracles, casting out demons. They're doing all that stuff. And yet Jesus says it's possible for you to be lost. So who's he talking to here? Notice these are people who call Jesus Lord. That means these are theologically orthodox people. They're Jesus followers. And not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. 
The doubling of the name is a Hebrew way of expressing passion and devotion. Jesus is talking about people who are theologically orthodox, passionate followers of Christ. And according to Jesus, these people are lost. Why? Friends, pay very close attention to what Jesus says here. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. Notice Jesus said, they will say to me, on that day. He's talking about the day of the Lord. Anybody in his original Jewish audience would have known exactly what he meant by this. The day of the Lord is, it shows up all throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again as a way of talking about the final day of judgment when God will sweep away the wicked and welcome the righteous. And let's just say right there that this idea of final judgment, yes, is one of uh, very troubling to a lot of people. And if you're someone who's troubled by it, then please keep coming back because we'll actually have a whole sermon on this later in the series. But just for the sake of being really clear right now, the day of the Lord, the day of final judgment in the Old Testament, who's the one who sits on the throne of judgment and dispenses the final verdict on all of humanity? Who is that? It's God. It's not a trick question. (laughs) It's God. That's why it's called the day of the Lord, is because God is the one who dispenses final judgment on humanity. Now, here in the, New, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't deny the existence of the day of the Lord. He just assumes it, and, and notice what he says. They will say to me, wait a minute. Are you starting to see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus pictures himself as the one sitting on the throne of judgment and dispensing the final verdict on all of humanity. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, right after this, he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now, again, we'll talk more about judgment later in this series, but for now, do you see, if Jesus is a great teacher, what is this great teacher actually teaching? He's saying, I am God. I am the God who created the universe. I'm the God who created flowers and puppy dogs and mountains, who created you. And the deepest, most fundamental need of your heart is not only that you would have a set-by-set step of ethical and moral instructions. You need that, but even more fundamentally than that, the deepest need of your heart and your life is that you would have a relationship with me as your God. The deepest need of your heart is to be known by me. The big question Jesus is saying is, are you known by Jesus? Friends, do you see this? Jesus is telling us that's the biggest, deepest need of our heart. Is Jesus a great teacher? Absolutely. But the thing Jesus is teaching is the most important thing is whether or not we're known by him. That word know, when Jesus says, I never knew you, is a a word, whenever that word is used in the Bible, it's not a word that simply means intellectually knowing about something. It's a word that's often used for sexual intimacy. In other words, Jesus is talking about the deepest, most personal, most vulnerable kind of intimacy that that we can be capable of and saying, that's the most important thing you need. Is he a great teacher? Absolutely he is. But the thing Jesus, the main thing Jesus is teaching is himself. He's teaching that he is the God who created us and that we need to be in relationship with him. And that leads to our last point. Can we know what Jesus taught? Well, with a high degree of confidence, not certainty, but confidence, yes, we can. If so, what did Jesus teach? He taught himself as the God who created us and um, with whom our deepest need is to be in personal relationship. But lastly, why does this matter? 
What, well, for lots of reasons this matters for us, but let me focus on one big reason, one big implication of this. Um, notice one of the warnings Jesus gives here is he says, watch out for false prophets. Now, in that day, prophets, they were teachers. He's saying, watch out for false teachers. And um, they were like the thought influencers and the, um, the thought leaders of their day. So if these guys were around today, they would be um, on Twitter and Instagram. They'd be writing books. They would have their own YouTube channel. Uh, but Jesus calls these prophets false prophets. Why? Well, here's one of the ways you'll know that they're false. Um, think about the questions and struggles that we were talking about at the beginning. Every single one of us, we're just trying to find our way through life. We have questions. We have struggles. We're trying to find our way. The false prophets were saying that the answer is Jesus plus something else. So back then, um, and you can read the New Testament and you can see examples of this, uh, false teachers were saying, well, the answer is Jesus plus circumcision and obeying Jewish law. Or it's Jesus plus a secret mystical knowledge. Or it's Jesus plus some mysterious ritual. Or it's Jesus plus uh, an ascetic, disciplined, highly rigorous lifestyle. The answer of the false prophets is always Jesus plus something else. In other words, it's anything or anyone that pulls you away from single-hearted devotion to, allegiance to, and reliance upon Jesus alone. It's always Jesus plus something else. Now, here's what this means for us. Think about the spiritual landscape in our world. Over the last several decades, there's been a virtual explosion of interest in spirituality, and along with that explosion, there's a narrative in our culture that says, look, it doesn't matter which spiritual path you choose as long as you find something that works for you. In fact, you're free to mix and match spiritual traditions. You can take a quarter cup of Jesus, quarter cup of Buddha, quarter cup of your favorite Swami, sprinkle it with a dash of Oprah or Gwyneth Paltrow, and voila, customized spirituality. Now listen, you are perfectly free to do that. And as a finite, limited human being, I can't stand here and tell you with 100% certainty that that's wrong or that's mistaken. I don't know for sure. What I can tell you, what, what the New Testament would present to you, is that when you look at the real Jesus, when you look at the Jesus you meet here, that Jesus will never share his voice or his authority with anyone else. Notice what he says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Jesus assumes an authority for himself that no one else ever dared to do. Notice it says at the very end that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Here's what this means. Every other prophet, every other teacher back then, they always, if they were talking and teaching, they always had to say, thus says the Lord. Read the, New uh, the Old Testament, that is. Anytime a prophet is claiming to speak for God, they always have to qualify it at the beginning by saying, thus says the Lord. Jesus never does that. He always says, thus I say. All the other prophets and teachers speak for God. Jesus speaks as God. Jesus will never share his voice or his authority with anyone else. Why does this matter? Because life is a journey through a dark wood, and we're all just trying to find our way. Life is a series of storms, and we're all just trying to find our way through. I was at a memorial service yesterday, and the son of the man who died said, you know, in many ways, my father was a mystery to himself. And I thought, man, you know, at some level, aren't we all a mystery to ourselves? 
Isn't life a mystery? So on. Isn't life a series of storms, a journey through a dark wood, and we're just trying to find our way through? Listen, um, if Jesus really is just one voice among many, you know what this passage is teaching us? Jesus will never share his voice or authority with anyone else. We are all going to have some voice that's going to have ultimate authority in our lives. The only question is, whose voice? If Jesus is just one voice among many, if you say, well, I listen to Jesus' voice, but I also listen to this voice or that voice, well, here's the question. Do you see what voice is telling you which voices to listen to? In our culture, we say, well, you can mix and match. Ultimately, the, the only voice that has ultimate authority in your life is your own inner voice. Do you see the irony there? If the reason that we believe our own inner voice is the ultimate authority is because our culture told us so, don't you see? Our culture's voice really is the ultimate voice of authority in our life. You are always going to give some voice ultimate authority in your life. The only question is, whose voice? Jesus says, broad is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. He's saying there is a way of living that looks very wide and open on the front end. It looks very open and tolerant and inclusive. It looks like freedom on the front end, but when you follow it to its ultimate conclusion, it leads to destruction and death. But, but then he's saying there's another way. He says um, wide is the gate, I mean uh, small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. In other words, Jesus is saying the road I recommend to you on the front end, it looks like death. On the front end, it looks very suffocating and um, constricting and, and limiting and narrow, like you're going down a, a, a little pipe, a narrow pipe, and you're going down, 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 narrower and narrower and narrower until finally you feel like you're going to be crushed. But then finally at the end, you pop out on the other side and you're walking around in a wide open place of freedom. That voice, that life, that way is a life that is built on Jesus and his voice. And the reason it can be yours is because it's a picture of what Jesus already did to join you in your journey through the storms of life, through the dark wood in which you're just trying to find your way through. What do I mean? In 2013, there was a tiny child who fell down a really narrow pipe in a village in Romania. It was all over the news. And they, for hours, they were trying to find a way to get this child out of this pipe. The, the problem was the pipe was so narrow that there was no way for them to get down there to the child. The challenge was to find somebody who could, um, who could make themselves small enough to get in the pipe. Somebody who could squeeze themselves down into the pipe so that they could be with the child in the pipe. But the other challenge was they needed somebody strong enough to lift the child up out of the pipe. And so what they did, finally, a teenager came and said, I'll go down, skinny little kid. And you can watch the video online, actually. It's, it's dramatic. They um, tie a rope around um, this boy's feet, and then they lower him headfirst down into this narrow little pipe, and down he goes. And then when he gives the signal, they start bringing him back up. And all of a sudden, as they start pulling the rope out, it gets really hushed. You can hear everybody going, shh, shh. They're drawing the rope up drawing the rope up until finally out pop his feet, out pop his legs, out pop his body, and then he comes up holding the child with him, and the whole village erupts in joy. It's incredibly dramatic. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus, the creator of the universe, squeezed himself down into a fetus. 
Jesus squeezed and pressed and crushed himself down a narrow little pipe all the way down into a womb. And that was just the beginning of Jesus' journey because his road in this world was a road to destruction, ultimately a road that led him to die on a cross. Jesus squeezed himself down. He was squeezed and pressed and ultimately crushed on the cross so that we could find a wide open space where we could walk around in freedom. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, the doubling of the name, the passion, the intensity, the crying out, my God, my God. But all he heard from the Father was, I don't know you, away from me, so that we could cry out, Lord, Lord, And we would hear the Father say, welcome, my beloved child, into the kingdom of joy created for you from the foundation of the world. Friends, following Jesus and trusting in his voice is always going to feel like death on the front end. It's always going to feel like destruction and confinement and narrow and conflicting and pressing on us because following him is like that on the front end, but in the Ultimately, it leads you out to a wide open place where you can walk around in freedom because that death, really all it is, is the death of your false self based on your voice and the birth of the true authentic self that you were created to be based on God's voice. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this passage is a powerful reminder that your storms will always reveal what you're trusting in. And that when you're walking through the dark wood of life, when you're going through the storms of life, what you need more than anything else, yes, you need step-by-step moral and ethical instruction. Of course you do. But even more than that, what you need is somebody who's already been through the storm, somebody who's already been down that pipe so they can be with you in your dark little pipe when you're going through it. So they can say, I've been there and I'm here with you in the pipe. This passage is a, is a call to keep trusting in Jesus, even when following him feels like you're getting pressed and crushed, and it will. But Jesus doesn't prevent you from the storms of life. He protects you in the storms of life. And if you are exploring faith this morning, maybe questioning or curious about Jesus, then I want to encourage you that Jesus is calling you to a choice, a real choice, the most important choice you will ever make. Because at the end of the day, there are only two possible choices, because there are only two possible voices, Jesus or you. Which voice are you following? If you're willing, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, um, in many ways, a really challenging word, but also a, a deeply comforting, encouraging word uh, when we follow it where it's really leading. Lord Jesus, um, We thank you that you have come to this world as a teacher, but we also thank you that what you've taught isn't just moral and ethical instruction, although you certainly give us that, that even more what you've taught is yourself, is our God, the deepest need of our hearts, who is with us in the midst of our storms and our dark little pipes. So we pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would meet all of us and give us the guidance we seek in the storms and uh, journeys of life, but even more than that, that you would give us your presence your beauty, your love, your power, and your might in our lives. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.